0: Are you a foster or adoptive parent who could use some expert advice on how to better care for your children? Are you curious to know more about the challenges foster and adoptive parents face? Are you someone who wants to know how you can come alongside these families to provide support and encouragement? Then we're so glad you're joining us for today's episode. I'm your host, Katie Morgan, and welcome to Parenting with Ginger Hubbard. Ginger is the best-selling author of Don't Make Me Count to Three, Wise Words for Moms, and I Can't Believe You Just Said That. She speaks at women's events, parenting conferences, and homeschool conventions across the country. You can check out her parenting resources and find out when she's speaking in or near your area at GingerHebber.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and find it encouraging, would you prayerfully consider partnering with us by making a monthly or even a one-time donation? Whether it's a dollar a month or $20 a month, your support helps us to sustain this podcast and keep it on the air. If you feel led to partner with us, just go to gingerhubbard.com slash support to donate any amount. Thank you listeners so much for your support. It enables us to further our mission to help parents reach the hearts of their children for the glory of God. If someone asked me, Katie, what is the key to homeschooling with confidence? I would tell them three things. Number one, God's word can't and won't homeschool without it. Number two, coffee, lots of it. And number three, encouragement from fellow homeschooling families. My husband and I have attended homeschooling conferences since our first year of homeschooling and I am convinced that I wouldn't have the confidence I have today without the wisdom and encouragement I receive year after year. Friends, if you're a homeschooling parent or if you're considering it at all, I highly encourage you to load up the family and join us at the Teach Them Diligently convention in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and that's May 5th through 7th, 2022. Ginger and I will both be speaking, and when we're not, we'll be hanging out in the booth, selling Ginger's resources and encouraging parents to reach the hearts of their children for the glory of God. For more information about Teach Them Diligently, go to teach. Them diligently.net. Again, that's May 5th through 7th in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and use the code Ginger to get $20 off your ticket order at TeachThemDiligently.net.
1: Well, Katie, before we get started, I'm going to do something a little different here. And before we even share our guest's name, I'm going to have her weigh in right now on why our listeners who aren't adoptive and foster parents should hang in there with us today. Why is this something that the whole church needs to hear?
2: Because we simply cannot close our eyes to the needs of the vulnerable. And that includes being intentional to understand how best to engage with them, whether they're in your Sunday school class, whether they're on your child's soccer team, or whether they've already been grafted in and now sit at your dining room table each night. These precious children coming from such brokenness matter to God, so then they matter to us.
0: Now that we've already heard from our guest, I want to share a little bit about how I came to meet her. So Ginger and I have received several questions from foster and adoptive parents who need some help with training and discipling and disciplining their non-biological kiddos, and many of them, or most of whom, are from hard places. But neither Ginger nor I have any experience with therapeutic parenting, which we'll get to later in the show. So I reached out to Lifeline Children's Services. Now, some of our longtime listeners will remember that Lifeline was one of our early sponsors on this show, and we are so grateful for their support of our podcast. But the reason I even pursued Lifeline to sponsor our show is that I strongly believe in their mission, which is to equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to vulnerable children. And they do that through adoption, foster care, orphan care, uh, counseling and support, as well as courses and training relating to all those areas. So when Ginger and I had received enough questions about parenting, foster and adoptive children that we had to address it, Lifeline is the organization that I contacted and that brings me to our guest Sonia Martin. Sonia joined Lifeline in July of 2019. She's from Montgomery, Alabama and she serves as (laughs) Lifeline's director in the central Alabama area. Sonia earned her bachelor's of social work from the University of South Florida and her master's from the University of Alabama. Never heard of it, Sonia, I'm sorry. Never heard of that school. Um, Sonia is extremely competent and accomplished in her field, but I would argue that her greatest achievement is that she is the mother of seven teenage boys, three of which were adopted internationally. She's also a foster parent for Montgomery County DHR. Sonia probably has lots of hobbies that she doesn't get to pursue very often because she cooks and cleans for seven teenage boys, but she says her three simple joys are Jesus, eggplant parmesan, and orphan care. Sonia, you had me at all but the middle one. I just don't know about that one, but
2: welcome to our show. Thank you so much, and I will win you over with the eggplant parmesan. Okay, I hope you do. I actually want that recipe. That sounds really good to me. So, Sonia, I am
1: so excited to share your information with our listeners today because based on some of the questions we've received, so many are at a loss for how to care for their adoptive and foster children in a way that both honors God and acknowledges the trauma they've experienced. Many of us might walk into a situation like that and think that we should immediately demand respect and obedience from these kids, no matter what their backgrounds are. Katie and I have talked a lot on our podcast about how obedience defines is all the way right away and with a joyful heart is our expectation of our own children, and something we encourage parents to lovingly enforce uh, from a very young age with their kids. But we're very aware that this expectation can and, and should look very different with a foster or adoptive child. So I'd love for you to share with us some of the reasons parents might need to change their approach with children who have experienced trauma. Uh, but before you do that, can you just give us a brief description of? of what trauma actually does to a child's brain.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But honestly, before I even hit that, if I can just back that one step further um, outward and really frame what trauma even is and what that looks like in the life of a child. So that trauma can be either manifest from a one-time event. This is things like being in a major car accident or a child experiencing the death of a parent Or trauma can certainly be chronic and pervasive, where these children are continually witness to domestic violence, or they're suffering abuse of some kind, or they're left to fend for themselves in sort of a framework of neglect. So though that core issue, right, that core trauma may differ greatly, what's clinically very interesting is that the resultant behaviors are typically the same, regardless of the genesis of the issue. And we know that that, to your point, is a direct result from the way that trauma impacts brain development. I won't get too um, (laughs) neuroscience-y here today, but two quick main parts of the brain I will highlight. The first is your frontal cortex. So that's really your learning brain. That's where we get that ability to obey. That's where we get that ability to have... Uh, intelligent discussions with one another and really engage back and forth and for a child to hear you. That requires them really to be sort of set in that learning brain. But the other part that's equally important that to acknowledge is their survival brain. And we've all got it. It's more in your midbrain area, involves the amygdala, but children from hard places will often actually live in their survival brain, mm. and that's due to their history, and that's exactly why foster and adoptive parents don't get that same level of responsiveness, first-time obedience, or engagement from those children initially. It's not that we can't get them there, but that is a direct result of why we can't see that yes, ma'am, and obey Uh, right off the bat. They are not engaged in their frontal cortex. They're not in their learning brain. Everything about them, everything about their story, and everything about their history is telling them, first, you must survive. Mm -hmm. Um, So the good news is, is because this is so incredibly predictable, there are phenomenal evidence-based practices that we can teach parents to implement in their home to perpetuate that healing. And the better news about this is that this approach, this therapeutic parenting approach, very much mirrors the way Christ approaches us. So mm-hmm. that's the ball game. Love that. And yeah, happy to speak into that some today.
0: That's awesome. Well, Sonia, you shared a video uh, with us of a workshop you did on trauma-informed care. So listeners, we will put a link to that workshop in the show notes. It is fantastic, and it completely opened my eyes to what these children have been through and how foster and adoptive parents have to change their approach in order to set their kids up for success. And as you talked about the ways that trauma affects the brain, it made me think of this time, we used to live in Birmingham and we had a tornado watch in our area. So we knew that we would likely have a tornado warning happen in the middle of the night. And so we had everything prepared by our bed. We also had a safe space in the basement all prepared for the coming storm. And you know, people laugh at me for my level of tornado preparedness, (laughs) but I do not care. I really don't paranoid. paranoid. When the tornado did, it actually did hit around 4 a.m., I sprung out of bed like I have never done before. So I'm the type of person who takes a full hour to wake up. Not that day. I bolted out of bed, ran to collect the kids, and the tornado hit our street just a few minutes later. Now, thankfully, it was an EF zero and there were no casualties in our area. But my mind went back, when I was listening to what you talked about and the way our brain works, my mind went back to what it felt like trying to sleep knowing that a storm was bearing down on us. So my mind was on such alert that I was restless and it took very little to get me from being completely horizontal in a dead sleep <laughs> to running around like a crazy person. When i thought of that, it just, it broke my heart for these kids whose minds are wired for a coming storm, whether or not it actually materializes.
2: Mm, exactly, and I so love that example. But you know, Katie, imagine with me for a moment as if, every day Mm. were like that for you. Mm. If each day you woke up and each night you laid down that you had that same fear of a massive source of destruction and pain that you knew was headed your way, would that not impact the way you go about your day-to-day activities? No doubt. Would you be as patient as you need to be? Or would you be a little bit snappy because you're so overwhelmingly consumed with your safety, with the safety of your family? You know, if you had that threat hovering over you, would you be able to focus well at work Mm. and perform with excellence? Or would you be highly distracted and prone to need to sort of physically be moving around and get ready, but also at the same time a bit distant, distracted, Mm. thinking through and planning all of those what-ifs that are occurring in your mind? If you thought that that tornado could come at any second of any day, would it not make it that much harder for you to separate, for example, from your children to go to the office and go and obey your boss for eight hours, right? Mm. This is the reality that these children are living in. So our role in loving and leading and discipling these children first comes with an understanding of where they're coming from. Anybody that was around you that day as you were preparing for that tornado threat and as you were busying yourself and getting ready and potentially a little bit stressed during that whole issue, we have to understand and give you grace, right? Mm. Give you some mercy, extend some connection to you and some helps to you in order to help you walk through that. What we don't do is demand that you ignore that threat, right? that your brain is telling you, danger, danger, danger. What we're not going to do to you is say, Katie, just knock it off. Stop it. Mm. That's not what we're focusing on right now. You're fine. It's going to be fine. Now I want you to sit here and we're going to work on these spelling words together, right? (laughs) No, you're so consumed and all your brain is telling you is danger, danger. Mm. And so you are going to have a response to that threat. And equally, that is a lot of times what our foster and adoptive kiddos are also perpetuating is feeling under threat.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, This is for my own curiosity's sake, but do babies who come to foster or adoptive parents from birth, do they still exhibit some of that same trauma behavior you described, or can we expect them, because they are so young, to be more receptive to our traditional parenting styles than older children who have spent months or years suffering, you know, whatever type of trauma they've experienced?
2: Mm, Great question. I get this one often, Mm. um, and the answer is yes, and the answer is no. Mm. (laughs) Um, Certainly, the younger a child is, by that very nature, assumes the less traumatic experiences that a child has been exposed to. And we know that our first memories are typically encoded around age three, three and a half or so. So there are many, many parents who believe that if they adopt a newborn or an infant that is kind of, quote, young enough, that they won't remember and will show just no adverse effects from adoption. The problem with that argument, however, is completely ignoring what's happening both biologically and psychologically with these young babies. And let me, if I may, break that down briefly. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. If we consider the biology of what's happening, we must recognize that much like alcohol, much like illicit drugs cross the placenta, right, during Mm -hmm. pregnancy and can impact fetal development, so too can cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone. Now, cortisol is our friend. We love it. It helps keep us alive. But the problem is young infant, young toddler, young fetal brains were never, never, never meant to handle that high of levels of cortisol and adrenaline at such a chronic rate. It's actually toxic to a developing brain. So what I mean by that is, let's say we've got a precious mama who is under significant stress in her day-to-day life, whether, for example, she's in a domestic violence relationship. And so multiple times a day, she is experiencing a negative engagement with someone coming at her. Biologically, mama is going to flood with cortisol and adrenaline. It is part of our survival response and the way the Lord designed us. And that is great and just and helpful to that mom. But the problem is, as I mentioned, that cortisol too crosses directly into that placenta. And when we pause for a moment and consider the amount of brain growth and brain development that occurs from conception to birth, We are talking about extraordinary development and growth during those nine months. And when we impede that typical healthy development and we pour just a cascade of cortisol onto that developing fetal brain, that is by its nature going to craft and create a brain that's going to function a little bit differently. Mm. So we certainly have strategies and things to understand how to, you know, come around that and how to perpetuate healing in that, but to negate the understanding of what's happening biologically is profound. Um, equally important, though, is the other side of that coin. We have to understand the effects of separation on a newborn when it is pulled from his biological mother's mother. Caregivers are simply not interchangeable. Much like none of us would, you know, I wouldn't say to anybody that's married, for example, walk up to them on the street and say, Hey, I know you're married, and I know that's just, you know, such a beautiful thing and a great relationship, but I'm going to swap out your husband real quick. You know, you're not (laughs) going back to that one anymore. I found you a new one. He's got a job. He'll make sure you're fed. You'll be fine. Right? Not interchangeable. Um, So it is with caregivers, and especially when we're talking about that mother-child relationship, we cannot just simply swap them out. This sweet baby has spent nine months in utero being soothed by the rhythm of his mother's heartbeat. He knows it intimately. He has spent those nine months being rocked by the particular way that she walks around every day. He knows the sound of her voice. All of these factors are remarkably influential and so key in how the Lord designed this relationship to begin. When that relationship is abruptly terminated and a baby is placed into the arms of someone who smells different, who sounds different, who has a different heartbeat, it provokes all manner of stress within the baby now, thereby releasing yet another cortisol influx into that now newborn brain. Wow. Yes. So incredibly important for parents that are looking to step into, you know, infant or newborn adoption. That is beautiful and redemptive. And, you know, we want that. We want to be able to stand in the gap for mamas and daddies that feel as though they cannot parent. But we simply can't go into it without an understanding of what's happening. And I would also point out that when we talk about that encoding of memories that I mentioned a minute ago... Yes, our conscious memories, you know, exist at about three, three and a half, but that's explicit memory. Explicit memories are those memories that we can easily recall. What we're negating is the impact of implicit memory. Mm. Implicit memory are memories that are stored in the body and absolutely have an impact on our future functioning. Um, It would be, for example, naive of us to think, okay, Sonia, I hear you. You're saying that our first explicit memories come online at about three years old. So therefore, I can just take my newborn baby, make sure he's fed, change him every now and then, but just sort of leave him on the bed for a few years because he's not going to remember anything anyway. No, right? We know that's wildly inaccurate. The reason for that is because through those day-to-day engagements in those very valuable first three years, we are encoding implicit memories that say to the body that say to the brain, you are safe, you are loved, your needs are met, right? These are the messages that our babies get by having that intentional caregiving those first three years, even though they will have no memory of it. Wow. That is so insightful.
1: I've never heard anything like that, but it just makes so much sense. Uh, Sonia, we originally titled this episode Therapeutic Parenting for Foster and Adopted Parents until we decided that that was just way too long (laughs) of of a title, so we changed it. But this episode really is all about therapeutic parenting. So can you give us a quick definition of what therapeutic parenting is and how it can differ from parenting our biological children?
2: Mm. Yeah, so therapeutic parenting really at its most basic level is essentially stressing connection over correction. Not connection instead of correction, hear me on that, but we are stressing the importance of connecting with your child over correcting them. We're still going to correct, but we're going to do it in a manner that involves connection. You know, whereas in parenting our biological children, we can expect and ask and really demand that first time obedience, and that's right and just and worthy. We can have an expectation of respect and manners and doing your best. In therapeutic parenting, we certainly do work toward each of those things, but we come at them a bit differently because we are understanding that their foundations, again, going back to what we just talked about the brain, much less their actual living experiences, are just built differently. So, to hold these kids to the exact same standard as our biological children can oftentimes be so- such a source of frustration and angst within the entirety of that family unit. So, though therapeutic parenting is not at all about spoiling, hear me on that, it is high structure coupled with high nurture as we walk alongside of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Sonia, in the workshop
0: we mentioned um, at the top of the show, you listed several therapeutic tools that parents can use to benefit their foster and adoptive kiddos. And interestingly, I already have many of those same tools around our house for one of my kids who has some sensory needs. So we will put a full list of those items in our show notes with links to Amazon. But can you share just some of your favorite tools that foster and adoptive parents can have on hand to help them in their efforts at therapeutic parenting?
2: Weighted blanket, weighted blanket, (laughs) weighted blanket. (laughs) If you get nothing else, um, I would highly recommend at least starting with a weighted blanket. The efficacy rates of those um, top many other sensory items that we can use to engage with. Um, Again, I won't get too sciencey with it, but essentially, really, what that weighted blanket does is putting some compression on your vagus nerve. When your vagus nerve is compressed, it's going to lower your heart rate and it's going to lower your respiratory rate, both of which are going to take a brain that's in a sense of angst or anxiety or frustration, and it's really going to start to kind of roll that in. You know, for example, Ginger and Katie, if one of you were having a massive ugly cry, you're just boo-hooing all over yourself, and somebody walks up to you and wraps their arms around you and gives you just this great big hug that feels good, right? Mm-hmm. You get that sensation of, ah... Oh. The reason for that is because you're getting that compression. So what the weighted blanket does is it mimics and mirrors that giant hug since we all can't walk around all day with our arms (laughs) wrapped around our children. This is a great tool. So the one thing I will point out specifically about the weighted blanket is do understand that this is not just for bedtime. Yes, it absolutely can help kind of push the body into some deeper sleep cycles and keep them in those sleep cycles longer, which is great but this is also great just for day to day to sort of retrain that brain to throttle back a little bit and exist in a state of calm so watching a movie on the couch weighted a blanket going on a car ride? Weighted blanket. Can't sit still at the dining room table? Let's try a weighted blanket. Um, So definitely that would be my top choice. The other thing I would encourage parents to consider is putting a very cheap uh, simple box fan in their child's bedroom and crank that baby up all the way to three. It should sound like an aircraft is landing in their bedroom. Uh, What we don't want is what's called light white noise. You know, there's a lot of noise makers and sound machines on the market, light white noise is going to be things like raindrops mm-hmm. and, and waves crashing in and birds chirping. And that's <laughs> lovely. Um, it is not so lovely for a trauma brain that we are trying to get to throttle back. We want heavy white noise. And one of the best ways to achieve that is truly just that cheap $12 box man um does all manner of goodness to help launch them into those deeper sleep cycles.
1: I never leave home without my box fan. I'm sitting here laughing cuz I'm just picturing Ginger Seriously. going to
0: conferences with her box fan. Oh family. I know. Like
1: <laughs> it was so funny when we went to the the first TTD I went to was at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel which is like super upscale fancy and I come trucking in there with my big old $12 box fan. So I'm all about my box fan.
2: I mean, I'm telling you, you're never too old for a box fan. <laughs> <laughs> I am with you, friend. So we will look silly together, yes. Um, interestingly enough, you know, just to kind of go back to the brain for just a moment is, you know, back to the brain, but also, Katie, honestly, your your example of the tornado evening. What's happening with our kids from trauma is that their brains are just constantly on alert, much like you were that evening that you felt under threat. And so any little noise any little you know, adjustment that the house makes during the night, because their brains are so titrated to be alert, 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 what's gonna hurt me, what's gonna hurt me, right? They're just constantly scanning. What that heavy, heavy white noise does is really absolve their brain of that ability, and it really does start to retrain it a little bit to kind of exist more in that calm, which is exactly what we want. So I would say weighted blanket, box fan, another great option are what are called sensory sheets. If your child does not enjoy the weight of that weighted blanket, try the sensory sheets. Really, they look like uh, Lycra pillowcases, except they are the size of the mattress. So really, your child kind of has to crawl in through the sheet and sort of shimmy down to get... um, in between it in the evenings. And that equally does exactly what we are talking about with that compression. And then the last thing I would really recommend, although there are many, we could go on and on, is some opportunities in your home for movement. These are things like a doorway swing, a mini trampoline maybe in the playroom, or if you've got a regular trampoline that you could put out in the yard. When we are talking about this cortisol response that these kids are very much used to and they're biochemically functioning or very titrated to that, what movement does is it actually decreases that cortisol. I know, for example, I'll give you a personal story. When I get stressed, I clean. Mm. When I get stressed, the last thing I want to do is sit quietly on the couch, you know, with my hands folded and just be quiet and calm. No, no, I got to walk it out. I got to clean it out. I got to go vacuum a rug, right? (laughs) That makes me feel better. The reason that makes me feel better is because that physical activity is actually discharging a lot of that cortisol that's going on in my system. Same is exactly true with our kids from trauma. So make sure that you're setting their environment up for success and giving them tools that will help discharge some of those chemicals when they need it.
1: Mm. You said something interesting in that workshop that we mentioned before, and I'd love to have you explain that a little bit further. You said to never tie any of these tools, like a sensory swing or weighted blanket, to a behavior, because when you make that correlation, you give the child control. Can you explain what you mean by
2: that? Yeah, so, so incredibly important. So what I mean is, for example, if your child's upside down, just having a massive tantrum, what we're not going to do is look at them and go, you are just off the chain. Go get your weighted blanket, right? Or dude, Mm -hmm. you are so upside down. You need to go jump up and down 10 times on your trampoline. No, no, because the minute we correlate a, a negative behavior with one of these sensory engagements, we are handing them all sorts of power in a very unhealthy way. So what we don't do is draw it to their attention. What we do do is we can see and assess through our own parental engagement with them that they're feeling a little sideways, that they're feeling a little bit wobbly. So we, in a very playful manner, can go get the weighted blanket and say something silly like, I'm gonna wrap you up like a burrito, right? And make it Mm -hmm. playful and make it fun, but yet you know that therapeutically, what you're doing is giving them that weight that's gonna work towards that calming effect.
1: Does your child struggle with whining or lying and you aren't sure how to get to the heart of those issues and address them from a biblical perspective? Then I'm excited to tell you about a new children's book series I've co-authored with my friend Al Roland called Teaching Children to Use Their Words Wisely. In the first book, Sam and the Sticky Situation, children learn that there are better ways to communicate than whining. And in the second book, Chloe and the Closet of Secrets, they learn why telling the truth is always best. Both books have a parent page to help children understand why whining and lying are wrong and how they can always turn to Jesus for help. So I hope you'll check out the Teaching Children to Use Their Words Wisely series. I think you and your children will be encouraged.
0: Well, Sonia, you encourage parents to think about their own relationship with the Lord as they disciple and care for the needs of their foster and adoptive children. We have a relationship with the Lord and so we obey, but we often expect obedience absent of a loving relationship with these kids. And so your advice to these parents is not to double down on discipline if obedience is lacking, but instead to check the relationship. So what are some practical tips you have for strengthening that
2: relationship straight out of the gate from day one? Mm, build the house. Mm. From day one, you begin to build a house. And what I mean by that is, you know, as you mentioned, I manage a home with seven sons, so that yes, ma'am, and obey works very well for me. But in the context of this example, let's imagine for a moment that that first-time obedience is like the roof of a house. I also love the roof on my house. Keeps me dry, keeps me safe, keeps me warm. But the thing is, if you want to build a house, the first thing you do is not go put a roof on. If you want to build a house, the first thing you do is pick a plot of land and you pour a foundation. And through day-to-day engagements, loving, leading, discipling, connecting, you begin to build the framework of that house. And over time, bit by bit, that framework and needed parts of your home, which is really the relationship, begins to take shape. And that allows for efficient functioning of the home. But so often what foster and adoptive parents can be tempted towards is expecting that same obedience that they are getting out of their biological children in the absence of any relationship. And that does not work. It is like putting a roof on without any foundation or any framing to hold it up. So when your child is struggling, instead of doubling down on requiring that immediate, unbending, uncompromising obedience, let's come at them with grace and mercy and connection. Let's build those walls of that house so that we can work towards that obedience. Are we still going to deal with the issue at hand? Absolutely, yes. But first, we're going to take some focus and take some time on that foundation that is missing. And that's really the critical piece of the puzzle, is that... I need parents to understand that they get that yes, ma'am, and obey because of the foundation they have with their biological children. They get that compliance and that respect because from prenatal times, that child has been safe and secure and attached to that mother, to that father, and that is how you are able to get that obedience these children coming from hard places and coming in your home, it is a different story. So we just simply have to be willing to adjust and understand and walk with them through this. We're going to get them there eventually, um, but it is a process that we have to be mindful of. Mm, That makes so much sense.
1: We know that many parents are dealing with negative behaviors with their foster and adoptive children. And um, Sonia, we would love to have you back on the show to address some of the most common behaviors in more detail. But in a general sense, should foster and adoptive parents deflect negative behaviors or even delay discipline until they have built that trust with the child? And how do parents know if a particular issue of disobedience is a hill to die on, so to speak?
2: Mm. We aren't going to delay discipline. We're just going to approach it differently. And oftentimes, especially in the beginning, especially those first few months, those first few weeks, we're going to fix the issue at hand together with our child. And really, one of the critical components of that is seeing them in the light of not what their chronological age says they are, but we're going to see them in the light of what their developmental age says they are. Mm, you know, if you think back to when we were we were all mothering very young children, you, you didn't say to your one-year-old, go get the rag out of the drawer, the second drawer down in the kitchen, and put it under the faucet and get it wet, you know, and go clean up the juice that you spilled on the floor. Now, what did you do? You got up, you went over, you put them, you scooped them up, put them on your hip, you got the rag out, you got it wet, and you cleaned it together. You really were in a spirit of connection with them, and that's how they learned. You did it together with them. So, just because we may have a seven year old child, for example, that's maybe coming to us in foster care, that child may in fact be seven years old chronologically, but developmentally, that child highly likely is throttling somewhere around three or four years old. And additionally, Never had anybody scoop them up, put them on their hip, Mm -hmm. lovingly guide them and teach them and show them. So it's really being willing to posture and position yourself in a manner of honestly humility and service before the Lord and the incredible call and privilege that He's given us to engage with these children, with the most vulnerable among us, with some of the most precious in His sight. But being willing to love, lovingly sort of walk through that with them is just such a big component of that. You know, for I will say practically, for example, if you've looked over and there are cookie crumbs all over the table and there is only one child that has been home that has had cookies, we're not going to say to that child, did you make that mess? Or you need to clean up your mess, right? Instead, we're going to say something like, hey, sweet boy, can you do me a favor and take this rag and just clean that up for me real quick? Now, he's likely going to start to fuss and defend and say something like, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I didn't do it, right? No, no. We're simply going to say, dude, oh, no. It doesn't matter to me who did it. Let's just get this cleaned up. I can't wait to go play soccer with you in the yard later this afternoon. Mm. So do you see what we're doing here? We're still fixing the issue at hand. Those cookie crumbs are going to get cleaned up. And this is not about spoiling. I'm not just chasing after him all day, cleaning up every mess he makes. But I'm coming at him with a spirit of partnership and with that spirit of connection to teach, to train, to love. And in the midst of that, I am building some of those walls on that house. Mm. Very wise.
0: Now is the part of our show where we give a quick tip for parents. Today's quick tip is courtesy of Sonia. So Sonia, what quick tip do you have for our listeners today?
2: If you are about to step into foster care or adoption, I would say simplify, simplify, simplify. (laughs) Avoid the urge to go out and purchase an entire closet of new clothes, tons of brand new toys, and just fill their room. These kids coming from this brokenness can so very easily become overwhelmed, and they're likely just not used to such things. So keep it simple. And I would also point out if they show up with a grocery bag of clothes and a couple of broken toys that are all filthy and maybe smell strongly of cigarette smoke, for example, please don't throw it all in the washer right away. Our sense of smell is really one of our earliest memories that are encoded and is extremely powerful. These kids have just lost everything they've ever known. So though you want to take that teddy bear and toss it in favor of the brand new one that you just bought at Target that's much cleaner, uh, let's see if we can hold off on that and really consider the needs of the child first. And by doing that, I promise you, you're already well on your way to communicating a message to that child that you are truly for them. And that is powerful.
1: Wow. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that I know, it is That's just such good information It just makes so much sense And Mm -hmm. it just so much wisdom in that And so much grace Well, if you have a quick tip for our show We would love
0: to hear from you It can be any random tip about cooking, housekeeping Something you do with your kids Ideas for fun date nights with your spouse Anything at all We would love to share your ideas on the podcast Just go to gingerhubbard.com Slash quick tips to submit those Well, we're out of time for this episode, but I'm thrilled that our listeners will get to hear from you again, Sonia. That episode is all about practical tips for solving some of the most challenging behaviors in foster and adoptive children. I'm sure that much of what you have to say will be helpful with our biological children as well as I've already been able to glean so much wisdom from this episode. Mm -hmm. So we are looking really forward to that episode. In the meantime, Sonia, can you leave our listeners with a final word of encouragement?
2: If we want really our faith to look like you know, Psalm 82, three, Isaiah 117, if we want our faith to be a description that we find in James 127, you know, true religion in the eyes of the Father is to care for the orphan and the widow in their distress. If we truly desire that, to be present before the Lord, it requires engaging in this battle for the lives of the most vulnerable among us. Thank you so much, Sonia
0: and Ginger for joining us and thank you listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening. And while you're there, can you leave us a rating or a review? This just helps us get the word out about our show so that other parents can be encouraged to reach the hearts of their children. Do you have a parenting question? Well, we invite you to submit it at gingerhubbard.com askginger Ginger and we'll do our best to answer it in a future episode. And while you're on the website, you can find our show notes, which will include links to all the things that Sonia mentioned and that we mentioned in today's episode. While you're on gingerhubbard.com, you can find Ginger's wonderful resources that will help you get to the heart of outward behavior and address it from a biblical perspective. So today we're offering her parenting book, I Can't Believe You Just Said That, Biblical Wisdom for Taming Your Child's Tongue at a 10% discount when you use the code parenting at gingerhubbard.com. Ginger also offers a free discussion guide for this book on her website, which is great for book clubs and small group studies. If you'd like daily encouragement and parenting advice from Ginger, be sure to follow her on Instagram at ginger.hubbard. And you can connect with me on Instagram with all my inspirational uh, poking fun at myself at Katie in a corner. That's K A T Y in a corner. Ginger and I would love to lead a women's event at your church. We offer a one or a two day conference as well as a full weekend retreat. If your church might be interested in hosting our women's conference or bringing Ginger in for a parenting conference, please fill out the contact form at gingerhubbard.com and we'll get back to you with more information. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, may God bless you as you seek to reach the hearts of your children for the glory of God.